But Omar, everybody knew the crazy dude who listened to, who was a, like, this is the other thing, a black dude who listened to, like, heavy metal music and wore a black trench coat. Omar's coming, had a shock. There were dudes like that. There were a lot of dudes where I grew up that were, the metalheads that were, like, Mexican dudes, like, straight up Mexican guys who loved, like, Sepultura. And that was, like, their thing. But they were still fucking gangsters. They just wear the, the metal T-shirts and, you know, their jeans a little bit too tight. And they, that's who they were. So that whole aspect of everybody being a B-boy in the hood, that's not true. Everybody's in the hood. That's the thing. So showing it like that and showing all the, the idiosyncratic behavior of the hood in The Wire was one of its most endearing qualities. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave. And I'm Kobe. And you're listening to The Wire Stripped. It's the show where we rewatch every episode of HBO's The Wire. And you won't just be hearing our voices. You'll be hearing from the cast, some of the crew, some fans. And we want to hear, and we have been hearing from you guys. This episode is all about Season 1, Episode 6, The Wire. This it's is the, the eponymous episode. Yeah. <laughs> this, um, here's our chat. Which we, why am I laughing? Here's our chat, which we recorded on the streets of London earlier this week. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track When you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul Just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole He got the fire and the fury So hi guys, welcome back to uh, Dave and I's chat about The Wire. We're talking about episode six. We're the back. Wire. Uh, the, That's called, what it's called. This, this episode is called The Wire. It's the titular episode. Yeah. This is like the when a band releases their third album and just calls it the name of the band. Yeah, the ba- the the by the the. I don't know why I chose them as a band name. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a, quite an example. I was thinking of Metallica and the black the black album, but then the fans still have to think of a name to call that album. Yeah. Right? I don't know. So what will the fans of The Wire call this, this episode? Episode six. <laughs> Season episode one, six. episode six. We're back in the we're back in the in the streets, uh, surrounded by the high rises uh, in in the pits, watching and observing the hand to hands, and we're ready to have a chat about what happens in, in in episode six. Which this is a this is a big episode. A lot of stuff happens here. So buckle in. Yeah, we got a lot to get through here. Yeah, we got to get all this done before the re up gets here as well. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> the first storyline I want to chat about is. This is, on, this is on the police side, and this is the team. This is like Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> this is Prez and Freeman. <laughs> these guys are. So Prez is Prez is kind of office bound because he's because he's proved to be a dick. Because he's a danger <laughs> to other people. He blinded someone. Because he blinded someone. So why this is such a great scene and why it really captures the beauty of the wire is that. On first viewing, it appears to be a very small scene. This is Cathy Cullen. She's my co-host on our podcast, The Cinemile, and she's also my wife. It's just Lester and Presbyluski listening to a, a very mundane phone conversation that Bodhi is having. Um, and Presbyluski, as we know, is, is basically the village idiot. And Lester is really intellectual, considered person. And this scene is him actually schooling Presbyluski on how to be a policeman, on how to put together evidence, on what's pertinent, what's non-pertinent, and why 
after going to so much effort to get the wire why you really need to pay attention to what you're listening to and use every single thing as a piece of the puzzle um, because left in Przebalewski's hands everything would be deemed non-pertinent never used and there would be no investigation whatsoever the wire tap now is up and running on the payphones that's what we should say yeah the wire tap's up and running and so they can they can hear the conversations going through now and we get a nice bit of exposition about what they can and cannot listen to we can't just listen to anybody's conversation this is quite this is quite interesting you call it exposition because i it is actually isn't it in in, in a lot of films a lot of tv shows the whole episode would be exposition but yeah. this in this one kind of minute exercise which is mainly for obviously it's for our benefit as a as a viewer but it's kind of disguised as a lesson for Herc because yeah, he's, cause he's cause such he, an idiot. He's a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> and Herc starts moaning. He's like, oh, you mean you have to go up to the roof and like identify any time they go on the payphone? Yeah. And Freeman kind of has a go at him. Then. Absolutely. He's like, yeah, that's the job you signed this up for. This is the job. Idiot. <laughs> what did you think it was going to be? So we got to be out there on those rooftops for hours watching these assholes talk on the phone? Yep. It's more bullshit. Detective, this right here. This is the job. Now, when you came downtown to CID, what other kind of work were you expecting? What do you think Herc thought it was? I think Herc, Herc's idea of police work is like a TV show, isn't it? Like you just go in and bust heads. And Herc thought that once, now the wire taps up, they could just sit and play crossword puzzles <laughs> yeah. with, with, uh, with Prez. <laughs> That's Prez's job. That's Prez's job to work on word search. <laughs> but yeah, this is where the job really starts for them. And I guess I like that. I like that police work is mostly monotonous, boring details. Just sitting on a rooftop staring at the the low rises and the pits for an entire day waiting yeah. for someone to make a phone call. And we see uh, Santangelo comes back in this episode. He's supposed to be looking out for the for the phone calls and he's oh, he's taking a piss he's taking a piss at a key scene yeah Mrs. Barksdale and Stringer Bell rocking up in sl- and they were doing it in slow motion yeah. as well <laughs> they were doing he a proper reservoir, time. reservoir <laughs> <Yeah>. dogs time <laughs> <laughs> it's a long piss he took um, so yeah that shows the job there we haven't seen him in ages where's he been Santangelo he's, he's gone AWOL and he does well, from the start Santangelo does not want to be part of this detail no um, and he's called back into it because Rawls kind of says, "Dude, keep an eye out for McNulty. I want, I want to know all this shit." That he's not even doing that job. Well. He's not. Yeah, well, if he's not there, how can he be? How can he be spying on McNulty? Yeah, where's he been? There's a reference to it a couple of episodes back, wasn't there? And they said that they hadn't seen him or something. Yeah, and they're covering for him. They're yeah. checking in for him. I guess speaking of people who are just checking in, we get Polk showing up to work completely blitzed. Absolutely hammered. Episode. That's such a funny scene actually because he just. He's the most drunk person I've seen on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wonder either he's the best actor ever or he's actually Ashley Hammond. Lit. That was brilliant. Actually, he was. His eyes are so his red. Eyes are, oh, it looks awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, Dan, and Daniels just calls him to the office and says, "Dude, you are fucked up." <laughs> I like I like Daniels in this episode. I think, in fact, this whole episode is Daniels. It is, is the star. Of this it's program. a good Daniels episode, isn't yeah. it? Because he sorts out he sorts out Polk, and uh, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail. But he 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 steps up to the plate for the detail. Yeah. Um, because beforehand you don't really know what kind of side of the coin he's on. And I don't think he does either. No. I think he's kind of caught between his ambition and wanting to do right. In terms of because when I say Daniel's heart, I mean it in two ways. I mean his uh, his kind of sense of uh, empathy, but also his courage to stand. To lead from the front, 
for his team against the command structure. This is the voice of Lance Reddick, who plays Lieutenant Daniels. There's this great scene, and it's, it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the show, in his office where he has Paul come in and uh, he confronts him with it. And he says, I know these guys have been covering for you because I've seen, you know, they're signing your time cards in and out, but it's not your handwriting. Um, and I and I, I know the, everybody's handwriting. I know which guy. And he, he goes, uh, he goes, he literally goes down the list of who's who's covering, who's signing him out and signing men when. And he said, uh, you need to carry your weight. He says, you either need to go up on those. So you're going up on those rooftops uh, doing surveillance duty. Wet is the expression he used, meaning, you know, drunk or, 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 or with a hangover, or you're going to check yourself in to rehab. Those are your two options. I'm not just going to transfer you to another detail to be somebody else's problem. So the second storyline here, it's kind of straddles the police and the street side is uh, Omar turning snitch. Yeah. Um, so, I, well, I guess we should talk about the very opening scene. Which Shit, is yeah. A uh, very horrible, brutal, um, uh, shot of Brandon's body and as as we heard Barksdale say a couple of episodes back he wanted him displayed like a like a like a prize stag or something so yeah. he's sort of splayed out on a on uh, on a hood and uh, we we get that sort of very good sort of crane shot starts on Absolutely. the body moves backwards and then zooms into Wallace's apartment yeah so this is the aftermath Brandon's death is the aftermath of Wallace and Poots uh, finding him in the arcades in the previous episode and this is, yeah. So this is carries on directly from the from that night before. It's a horrible. It's a horrible shot. Brandon just splayed out there with his eye popped out, mm. guts hanging out, and there for for everyone to see. And that's exactly what that's the message that that they that they wanted. If I remember correctly, they worked on that actor who played Brandon. Maybe hair and makeup worked on him for maybe. Two hours. Hey, I'm Damon Gordon. I was a uh, production assistant on HBO's The Wire, and I worked season one, two, four, and five, getting the the, the bruises and the cuts and the the eye gouged, which is a phenomenal job. And it's the first time I really saw hair and makeup really like do something astronomical that I'd never like something like very horrific. And I had to walk him to set looking like that. So we were, I remember we we had him. Uh, hooded up because literally we're walking through real neighborhoods like you know as we're as we're going um and he was kind of in a solemn mood kind of getting into character but it was really eerie to see his body displayed on that car you know in 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 the alley like that um and again it's one of those things where in filmmaking we deal with repetition a lot you know, that's the nature of our business. We shoot over and over and over and over and get different angles of the same shot. That sort of starts to play with your mind a little bit when it comes to what's reality and what's not reality. And, but it just is a testament to the makeup and hair department. They did a phenomenal job on getting him in prep for that. And it was realistic. I mean, everybody respond, responded to it, you know, incredibly well. And I think it just kicked off the war between Omar and, and the Barksdale crew. And you go through the episode and you find out what he went through before they actually killed him. Yeah, we get little sort of details. I think it's very clever that they never showed us anything. I think yeah. it's far more powerful to just hint at it. Uh, that McNulty sort of tells Omar, 
about the sort of torture that they would have put him through to to try and give Omar up, but he never did. Yeah. But yeah, so we see Omar. There's a scene where Omar finally cracks, calls McNulty, and asks he wants to see him at the morgue. McNulty has these kids with him, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, classically mixing work and work and home life again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, brings Omar to the morgue. It's quite a sad scene where Omar faces Brandon's body. Yeah. And then yeah, Omar Omar decides he's going to do whatever it takes to bring Barksdale down, both his own way and with working the with the police. Yeah, because there's a nice way Kima puts it. She says, you know. You're obviously going to go out with your your sword off and take your own form of justice, but that's not enough. And we can we can also take him down in a much bigger way. So yeah. help us out here. In the cemetery, you were telling us a guy by the name of Bird killed a working man. You that man who testified. William Gant, right? Yeah, Bird did that one for sure. How you know? Everybody know, man. Nigga walked up behind the man and shot him straight in the head. The whole blessed project saw that much. And Bird worked for Avon. Yeah, it's one of his shooters. But to use this real sweet gun, he got a, a 380 from uh, Austria, Australia, something like that. But I know we love that gun. A 380. Yeah, 380. You get him, you get the gun. Because Bird too dumb to throw a gun like that off. A gun alone ain't enough. Oh, no? He goes to court, testifies he bought the gun on the street after Gant was killed. Come on, now, man. So what be enough, then? Eyeball witness. Some kind of corroboration for what you're telling me here. Okay. Okay what? I'm your man. You saw the murder? Yeah. You can ID this man Bird as a shooter of William Gant? And you ain't afraid to go into court downtown and testify against one of Barksdale's people? Oh, I don't scare. And that's good. That's a great scene because A... Omar gives up a lot. It tells him, it tells him how, to, how to identify the, um, a lot of killings using, the, using Bird's gun. Yeah. Which he which he uses all the time, which is a bit stupid. His favorite gun. His favorite gun. Which we, I mean, we all have a favorite gun. Don't we, we do. Um, yeah, yeah. Mine is a Magnum. <laughs> That's the only gun I can think of off the top of my head. Is that the Dirty Harry gun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the hand cannon. The hand cannon. Yeah. Go ahead, make my day. But it's also he says, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna snitch. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that I saw Gant being shot. If you want an eyewitness, I'm gonna be that eyewitness, even yeah. though we know. He's he's he wasn't he's there. He's not very convincing. No, he's not convincing. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you there? Yeah. <laughs> sure, I was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If you want. Um, but also, what I really like in that scene is Omar's looking around. Mm. He's getting clues from the, the police. He sees what they know, and it's like, oh, okay, right. I'm going to use that for my form of retaliation and he's revenge. He's smart. Yeah. He's eyeing up that board. He's eyeing up the board. From the street side, let's talk about Brandon from the street side um, and how it ties in with Wallace, actually. This is where... So we see Brandon is displayed for everyone to see on the on the bonnet on, on the bonnet or the hood of the car and Wallace and Poot see it. Mm. You can just tell straight away how it's hitting Wallace yeah. hard. He's fucked up by this point. How old do you think Wallace is? He's, he's 16, I think, in this, Good isn't question. he? question. I don't know. Yeah, he, he looks younger almost. Yeah. Like, I mean, he probably is the same age as Bode. Bode says he's Bode 16. Bode says he's 16, but I don't think he's... He doesn't look 16. No, he looks a bit older. Um, Wallace does look more like he's 16, Yeah. but a young 16. But yeah, he's he is visibly affected straight away by, by that. And 
I guess more so by the fact that he's the one that's caused it. Him and him and Poo are the ones that have caused that scene, basically. Yeah, it really, I think the guilt really hits home for him. Yeah. I think it's easy for, it's probably easy for him to be a little detached from everything, you know, working his job. He never sees any of the murders, but this is something he directly caused and it's literally staring him back in the face. I think that's what he says. He, he can't get... He can't get the image of Brandon Brandon's eye staring back at him out of his head. He was all cut up and shit. His insides was hanging out. It's fucked up, yo. I mean, damn. Sometimes you guys send a message, yo. I mean, yo, when you picked up that phone, what, what, what you think they was gonna do, huh? Shit, all that shit is in the game, man. You know that. Yeah, like you and that girl, huh? What girl? The one in the apartment. The one you told us about, remember? I mean, I like what you said about all that killing, you know? Especially that part about how it ain't got to be like that. Just sell the shit and move on. Give me a ginger ale and get some for yourself. Yeah, I know, I remember that, but it ain't like that, is it? Yeah, I know. I know it ain't. Thing about it was his eye. His eye was blown out, and the other one was open. And yo, ding, it fucks me up. It's like he's looking out, like he sees everything, you know? Don't think about it. I can't. Fuck. Yo. Let that shit go. Just let it go. He's trying to reason with um, D'Angelo at that point. He's trying to get some kind of, I don't know if it's closure or understanding or just help. Some kind of therapy, really, isn't he? Yeah, and Dr. Dr. D'Angelo. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. It's like, no. that's how it is. Deal with it. And it's, it's conflicting for Wallace because... He sort of references what D'Angelo had told them in an earlier episode about, you know, why, why does the game have to involve murder? Yeah. Why can't we just give, give the drugs to people and it be a business? And Wallace harks back to that. Um, but D'Angelo seems to have sort of flipped his mind. He's become a bit sort of nihilistic. He's like, yeah, as he said, this, that's just the game. Storyline two is after after the powwow with uh, Bodie and Herc and Carver, they actually step up to juvenile court and we see Morris Levy, who's uh, Stringer Belt, who's the main lawyer f- for he's the guys so in the streets. Such a classic slimy sleazeball, isn't he? <laughs> and he's there to he's there to get Bodie out of of juvie, basically. Yeah, and you see sort you see how how they keep their their guys out of prison. It's yeah. very clever. They've signed like. They've sort of, on paper, made him this pillar of the community. Or he's like signed up with, with loads of charity groups, and and he's just a, yeah, he's a victim of circumstance. Yeah, was, you know, he gave he was involved in the drugs trade, but he didn't earn any money from it. It was just like he was there, and he handed out one single gel cap to someone once. Yeah, and that was it. It's very it's 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 interesting how we see Morris spinning this story that's using some of the facts. And just presenting them very differently. Yeah. It's a very cynical look at how the justice system... Do you think work. the judge was too easy to accept what the lawyer was saying? I think the judge... Yeah, I don't know. The judge didn't seem to care too much, no. did he? He was just like, okay, you know, off you go. Yeah, so you, what's going to happen now? <laughs> Bodie says, I'm going to be good. I'm going to oh, be yeah. good. I'm, I'm gonna ready be good. to be good. I'm ready to be good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's good. Even Bodie's not really <laughs> trying that hard. <laughs> So Bodhi, at this point, he can't really believe his luck. He's kind of looking around thinking, is, is this happening? Is this yeah. actually going on? And even the judge, the judge knows something is sus. Yeah. Like he says, like, oh, how come you've got two high-priced lawyers? 
and they they have some spiel about yeah that being a pro, pro bono pro bono yeah. case yeah storyline three is yeah Johnny Weeks and Bubbles and another guy who we don't know the name of uh, teaming up together to to steal some copper yeah when when, he, when Johnny Weeks first tells tells his idea for robbing the copper house yeah was it just me or did you did you think he meant the police station <laughs> <laughs> I can see why he thought that I think perhaps the first time I re- the first time I watched this, I had no idea what what they were talking about. I thought they're going to rob the police. What the they're hell, gonna... man? <laughs> well, steal the typewriters. <laughs> yeah, they've got nothing. <laughs> the police got nothing to steal at this point. But it seems like, yeah, so Johnny Weeks comes up. Bubbles is working at uh, a market stall selling fruit and veg. Doing in some a, legit work. Yeah, in a vain yeah. attempt, in a very high-level vain attempt to be straight. Yeah. It takes... Maybe 25 seconds to be convinced <laughs> yeah. that there's money to be made in stealing copper. And they they scamper off with a stolen shopping trolley. Yeah, <laughs> and then they have this quite very simple but planned that is pretty effective. Mm. Uh, so Johnny gets hit by, pretends to be hit by the, the, the truck with the, the copper wire on it. Yeah. Uh, he pretends to be injured, distracts the guy, and then bubbles and unknown sidekick uh, <laughs> steal all the copper wire. And copper, the copper scrapping is a huge thing. A lot of drug addicts scrap metal. I mean, when you see, just like Bubbles and, and Johnny Weeks, on the south side, you southwest side, you see guys with shopping carts, and they got everything in there, broken water heaters, pieces of refrigerators, you name it. This is one of our listeners who reached out to us. Uh, we'll call him Paul. Uh, he's a former heroin addict um, who is from Baltimore and actually experienced a lot of the same things that happen in The Wire in real life. I have a college degree, but I always did electric work growing up. So that's one thing I did. I had I did electric work on the side, fixed air conditioners, you name it. And I would go into houses, like they, 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 these abandoned houses, people buy them for like 5000 and they fix them up and flip them, or they rent out the rooms. But when you go into it, every piece of scrappable metal in that place will be gone. Like every single piece. They will cut every wire, every pipe out of the place. And then they use that to buy lots of drugs and get high again. Yeah. Um, and then we, and, and then there's a moment where they run out of drugs. Yeah. Johnny goes back to buy some more and we see him get arrested. And Bubbles just said, that boy ain't got ain't no, no luck. Profile. On what? It's because I'm white, right? Why don't you just let me... Oh, man, what's that? What's that? That boy ain't got no luck. Being in Baltimore all the time, you have to be ready to like fight in a moment's instant. And you have to carry yourself a certain way or people will eat you apart like like if you look weak they're gonna fuck with you especially like i was a white boy walking right through the bad areas and if i were to be looking like like oh i'm scared or i don't know where i'm walking or my head down they would have picked me apart they would have robbed me they would kick my ass i mean i had these situations happen but i learned from them and i knew how to act i knew how to move in these areas so that they don't fuck with you. You have to respond in a way so they know, oh, this white boy's crazy, you know? So, what do we have to talk about in this episode? One really cool scene and really good insight into one of the characters is Wallace. Yeah, so we kind of get an insight into Wallace's home here. And it's very sad. 
um, we see there's a lovely sort of it's all in one tracking shot, isn't it? Yeah, from so, the, so that's kind of the prologue episode, the prologue to the episode. Yeah, and it's uh, we see him brushing his teeth with no toothpaste. No toothpaste, no running water. Nope. Yeah, just spit something out of a bottle. Yeah. Poots there with a girl, and when when we see oh, something like five or six kids who I assume to be brothers and sisters of well, they Wallace, or just, just it's, it's, they're probably the hoppers that I think Wallace feels the need to take them under his wing yeah. even though Wallace isn't in really any better position he's just older he's he's yeah he's kind of like Wallace's home for gifted children <laughs> he's the <laughs> Professor X of the of the projects <laughs> again but that, that gives insight into Wallace's character you can see why he's why he's hit why it's hit him hard what happens to Brandon because he's looking after these kids you get the kind of impression that any money that he gets is helping these kids out He's tender. He's giving yeah. them like, and he's looking after them. There's a system. He's he gives them all a packet of crisps for lunch. Um, the juice boxes. Juice boxes. Like he's he's a father figure. Yeah. And he's only what is he? Fifteen, sixteen. As we said, it's like, it's it's really tragic. And this is um, I th- I noticed in this episode more than any other, a lot of little stylish touches from a director. I looked him up. His name was Ed Bianchi. Right. Um, who's done a lot of TV work over the years, but he's a music video director okay. initially, and you can kind of see that in the the slow mo scene with uh, right. Bell and right, Barksdale yeah. uh, entering the project. Yeah, because that's kind of atypical of the of the Wire, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. the Wire tends to be a bit more restrained. There's no, the, it tends to be, you don't get a lot of music. It's no. all in the, it's, it's all, all di- just in the acting and the dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Episode six also features, and this is getting real specific. One of the only examples of non-diegetic sound outside of of ending episodes for um, each season. This is Andrew Johnston. He's an academic and a podcaster from Maryland. So the end of each season will have the we cut to a song that's playing over usually a montage of either cops arresting people or drug dealers getting away with something, depending on the season or. Um, or a white guy crying uh, on a fence as as everything falls apart. Um, but uh, yeah, it, that's so we always get that. But outside of that, there's no real use of non-diegetic sound. Music is almost always happening in this. It's, by the way, if you don't know what non-diegetic sound means, that's what it means. Is it's the the characters can't hear the music. Diegetic is they can hear the music. Um, almost always on and seemingly on purpose because of course the soundtrack to the wire is critical to understanding who these characters are what they're listening to is sort of a big part of their their actual character this is a great episode with uh, daniels in a few cases um, we talked about how he deals with the drunken polk um but this is a great scene where well, Kima and Lester and and McNulty front up and say, "Right, you need to do something." Yeah. And he does. You don't think he's going to do anything, but he steps up to Rawls in front of the deputy commissioner and absolutely has a go at Rawls. Uh, and it's such a really cool. See, this is where you kind of see him, you know, heart in his sleeve at this point, really, isn't it? Yeah. This is this is the best Daniel's moment we've yeah. had so far. You know, he's finally doing the right thing, and he's taking, you know, he's taking a risk with his own career Absolutely. Which, which he's worked uh, uh, hard at but he knows that it's the right thing he knows Rawls knows it's the right thing and he and he, he convinces the deputy and he's right you know yeah. just wait a month Rawls will still have his cases Absolutely. Uh, but we have a chance here to do something bigger Rawls 
What, what's your opinion of Rawls at this point? I mean, he's such a dick, <laughs> isn't he? That's exactly what. I <laughs> just such a, br- but he's a brilliant dick. Like he just loved to hate Rawls. He's just yeah, he's after the stats. He just wants to clear. He's he's everything that's wrong with the police. With system. the system, yeah. Yeah. Nobody's working together. It's the metaphor of the desk being pulled in and out again. He's yeah. working against Daniels. Each other. Yeah. He's just being selfish. He wants his stats and his he wants his murders cleared. And it's one of those things whereby us looking into that kind of world, we kind of think, why aren't you just trying to be good? Clearly yeah. what they're trying to do is gonna be a better result for everyone involved. But he's kind of looking after his own numbers and the system it just shows the system is needs a rethink. Yeah, it's 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 the priorities are all wrong. Yeah. And you've got people working against each other. And they're all, I mean, let's not forget the whole reason that this whole thing came about was because a judge, someone higher above them, decided that this needed to be done. Yeah. And that, that's the only reason that the deputy even agrees to give Daniels more time because Daniel says, we're just going to be back here again and the judge is going to be looking for responses. That's, that's the only bit of leverage. Yeah. It's basically all politics. We've talked a bit about the clothes I think in the first episode you talked about uh, D'Angelo's crew neck jumper and, and the leather jacket oh yeah and this leads into this this episode which is a fantastic kind of fashion montage oh yeah which, which, takes, which takes like half the episode why why did we get so much of this D'Angelo spends a long time <laughs> deciding what to wear and then all he chooses is with some pants and a shirt Ultimately, it's yeah. it's crap anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, D. I love you, but. <laughs> and he says to Chardine, uh, "Yeah, damn, I look good." <laughs> Does he? He's very happy with his outfit. He's very things. happy with it. Yeah. But I mean, I would add also that I'm, I could never enjoy D'Angelo. Hi, I'm Scroobius Pip, and I host the Distraction Pieces podcast. I don't know why. I never liked him. He just always r- r- rubbed me up the wrong way. I don't know. I think everyone in the wire. Clothes wise, looks so cool. Like I, I, I've been rewatching, and it feels like it hasn't dated at all, except for D'Angelo, who looks like his dad's dressed him, or it's just his clothes ill, Ill fit. And it looks like it looks like someone from where I live out in Essex has done a fancy dress for a, a, a Compton party, and it's a little bit offensive because he's just got stupidly oversized clothes and. Yeah, I was never a fan of D'Angelo. There's a point where he's meeting up with his missus and she says, oh, you've taken ages, like, it takes a long time to look this good. And I'm like, you look ridiculous. <laughs> you look like you, they, they, they didn't have anything in your size and you bought what was left. It's like, they made a point of him being it takes a long time to, to look this good. It's bizarre. But that's the bigs. That's that was the thing. Like you see people dressing. This is Huey Morgan. He's a fun-loving criminal presenter on BBC Six Music, and host of the like, Huey Off the Record podcast. Just like they're in fucking Mob Deep, like really street, and you're like, oh shit! This is, whoever's doing all that stuff. The guy who was the 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 in charge of like the costuming, he knew what the fuck was up, man. I mean, you 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 knew they had the right kicks on. They had the Tims, you know, like. All that shit's really important to a guy like me, like a b-boy who grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We always knew what was up. And then when you see that shit for real on, on TV, you're like, these motherfuckers got it, you know? I'm not sure what what we were supposed to read into this scene. It just felt like 
Are we just supposed to get an insight into is this where he spends all his money? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because he show he is a direct kind of contrast, but not so much as uh, how Stringer Bell and Barksdale are positioned. But compared to Wallace and Poot, he's in a much better position. True. That he can buy a lot of clothes that he he buys and doesn't wear until you know you can, can see him opening the, the Timberland boots for the first time. They're all the same Timberland, so I don't know why he's got so many different pairs. <laughs> <laughs> you see him clipping off the labels for the first time and putting them together, trying them on. So he's in a much better position, even though he's on salary, which he's not happy about. He's in a much better position than Poot and Wallace and, and the kids that he's looking after. That's a good point, yeah. yeah. I thought of that. Plus, he can afford a, a bitchin' 4-3 four, four, aspect ratio black and white uh, TV. <laughs> <laughs> With, <laughs> did you notice he had a he had a, a CD collection next to it? I didn't. Well. No, but it's it's, yeah. two, it's 2002. I had a massive CD collection in 2002. Yeah, we all did. I was so proud of my CD collection. Did you own a nice uh, sweet CD rack? I had I I had a it was a shelf it was a bookshelf that I just t- was full of CDs and DVDs. Nice. I didn't read so much then. <laughs> just listen to music. <laughs> just listen to music yeah. and watch films <laughs> uh, or watch things like The Wire. Anything else we want to chat about in this? Yeah, I thought there was a nice little moment um, when McNulty shows up to, to Brandon's murder scene yep. and he's talking to the two homicide detectives yep. and they've been waiting for a crime lab to show up for an hour and turns out that all the forensics guys are over at the, the council president's house because his lawn, furn- lawn furniture it's was been stolen. stolen. Yeah, uh, And I think it's a little bit of... just a bit more of how the police department is so, so broken. Absolutely. So it kind of shows. It shows. This shows in more detail here how how the police system is set up to favour the people who are higher up in the ranks, and kind of disfavours those where those guys who are actually doing the real police work. Um, and those two those two coppers that are primaries on the on the Brandon job are in complete dismay. They're properly pissed off, properly gutted that they have they've had to wait an hour to process this. This crime, this horrible crime scene. Have we seen them before? No, that's the first time we see them. Um, one they of them show up later, don't they? As well, they show up later. They show yeah. up a few more times in in the season, and they are based on. They're, they're, one of them is the is a real police officer in real life. Oh, really? Yeah, a guy called Ed Norris. The shorter guy is yeah. Ed Norris, and the taller guy is based on a real police character, um, as written in Homicide: Life in the Killing Streets as well. So, yeah, based on real police officers, and yeah, they're, they're, you see them again coming time and time again and you feel like this lawn furniture um, anecdote was probably based on something real something real yeah I think like a lot of the wire there are all these real people in the wire and one of them is Ed Norris who uh, is appears in episode 6 when they're investigating the the body of Brandon he's got white gloves and a radio and he's the one who says that um, Brandon was tortured that is former chief of police of Baltimore City Ed Norris. And Ed Norris made his name in 1990. Uh, He was investigating a murder. Let me make sure I uh, get this name right because I definitely don't know how to pronounce it. Um, But the murder of Mir Kahane in 1990 um, was determined by the NYPD to be like this solo killing. And Ed Norris said it was a conspiracy killing because it was this Israeli radical who said that... um, that Jews needed to leave America and go to Israel before radical Islam came after the United States. Well, that murder happened to have been committed 
by a member of a little-known organization at the time called Al-Qaeda. And was that murderer was connected to the 1993 World Trade Center attack. And so Ed Norris was right that this was the beginning of a conspiracy to attack the United States. And it was fascinating to see him then come back on to, to do The Wire. While he, I mean, he was chief of police 2000 to 2002. He was still chief of police when he was in that scene. <laughs> like, like David Simon just calls up the chief of police in Baltimore and is like, hey, you want to just like give me like, I don't know, two hours of your time, maybe three, depends on, you know, how many takes this is to just come, just come play a random police officer. And he has since gone on to be a radio show host and um, said some strange things about the um, riots that ensued in 2015 after the death of um, Freddie Gray. Surprise. A white guy who was a cop is is not a fan of Black Lives Matter. I'm not surprised. But anyway, uh, it's always interesting. Whenever you see a character who's not uh, one of the major characters, they're probably a person from Baltimore, and they're probably a person who did something. I think that's my favorite epigraph, um, is that, and all the pieces matter. So the epigraphs are those... Those little snippets of text that you see before before the show starts. And this is perhaps one of the, my favourite ones. Uh, it was a bit of a game for me, actually, trying to spot... When I watched this the first time around, trying to spot where, where, they, get said. where they get said. Yeah. And this is one of the most obvious ones, but it's a clear one. It's when Prez and Freeman are in the office and listening to, initially, um, Bodie talking on the phone, speaking to Stringer Bell, and... Prez marks down that conversation on the phone call as non-pertinent. Freeman kind of says, how's that non-pertinent, mate? And he's like, well, they didn't talk about drugs. Freeman kind of steps back and says, we're building something here, detective. We're building it from scratch. All the pieces matter. It's really fascinating about each of the characters is all the hidden things that are on them throughout. So take Lester, for example. Lester, What's Lester's name? Lester Freeman. That's a telling name that's a very important name for lester freeman because and for those of you who are not american and are not as intimately familiar with american history um there are a lot of black people named freeman because it means at some point in time their ancestor was a slave and was freed either before um 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation, Proclamation came out, or after 1863, um, they would have gotten the name Freeman by going to the Freeman's Bureau, where they would have gotten an education. Before that, they would have been given the name Freeman just because they were a free man. And they didn't have, again, as slaves, they didn't have last names. All of their African names were, were ignored and gotten rid of immediately. As soon as they, as soon as they were bought, that went away on purpose. So that says a lot about his character. He descends from a freed man. And freed men kind of carry this cultural weight in America because there's something special about that. And so freemen are thought of in that time as sort of being, in some people's eyes, genetically different from slaves because they were free. And so they had to be the best and the brightest. You had to be to prove why you were free. Uh, and, and his name is also Lester. 
I assure you, there is not a black man in America under the age of 40 named Lester. <laughs> no one's carrying the name Lester anymore. So it puts him from a very particular time and from a very particular family in the city of Baltimore, a family that would have been middle class. Lester would have grown up middle class. He would have gone to school probably to Morgan State or to Howard. He not necessarily got a full bachelor's degree, but likely would have gotten one. Those are historically black colleges. And he would have sort of remembered a different time for the African-American community in Baltimore before it became entirely framed by the the drug scene. And that's really interesting for his character. It, it sets up this absolutely brilliant guy, but also a guy who knows to keep his head down, which he does for like 25 years <laughs> working in the Lost Property Division. So like every character has something like that. I, I've got one last thing I'd like to say uh, about McNulty's driving. I Shoot. mean, we know, we know that McNulty drinks and drives. He does that a lot. Um, <laughs> but the way there's a, there's a moment in, in this, um, I think it's when he's leaving the crime scene um, with Brandon's crime scene. Brandon's crime scene. And I don't remember where he's going, but he just hops in the car and reverses down the street <laughs> at full speed. Like I'm talking 30 miles an hour without barely without looking at right onto a right onto a road. It really it really bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say this is this is actually perfect timing because we've we've separately we've both seen baby driver haven't we <laughs> yes <laughs> it was like a baby driver it move, was but like mcnulty you're not you're just go, you're just going somewhere else just calm down dude. yeah don't need to go that fast yeah you're not a getaway driver <laughs>
And as always, thanks to our stalwart, our rock, Mr. Tom Wally, the third member of the Wire Stripped team, and the man who keeps uh, this train on the tracks. See, I did a nautical metaphor before, now I'm doing a train one. <laughs> Steep. <laughs> Thanks also to Izzy Lawrence for all the logo and graphic skills. And to Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast who recorded this special version of Way Down in the Hole that you're hearing right now. Okay, uh, that's how for now, guys. Uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.